Today's scripture reading is Joshua 16:1 through 17:13. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Adaroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Japhletites, as far as the territory of lower Beth-horon, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Adaroth-Adar, as far as upper Beth-horon, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Michmethoth, then, on the east boundary, on the east, the boundary turns around toward to Anath, Shiloh, and passes along beyond it on the east to Genoa. Then it goes down from Genoa to Adaroth and to Naara, and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapua, the boundary goes westward to the brook of Cana, and ends at the sea. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans together with their towns that were set apart for the people of, of Ephraim within the inheritance of the Manassehites, all those towns with their villages. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Then the allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters, and these are the names of the daughters. Mahala, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Michmethoth, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of En-Tapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook of Cana. These cities to the south of the brook among the cities, Manasseh belonged to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and ends at the sea, the land to the south being Ephraim's and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its villages, and Iblaam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Ta'anach and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Nafath. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, 
but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. This is God's word. Amen. All right, so today we continue with the um, distribution of the promised land. And for those of you who are new or visiting, you might think, um, what in the world are we going to talk about after hearing that? Um, Or are you kidding me? Um, No, we are not. So um, we've been going through the distribution of the land for the last four weeks. And so um, the first week we talked about um, how God assigns different lots and how these lots are... um, what he gives us to steward. It's not for us to know the whys and the hows, but for us to work to uh, steward these things to his glory. Um, The second week, we learned about Caleb. Uh, Caleb, a man with a different spirit. And we see through him how to stand up for God without uh, the promise of benefit or success. Now, last week, we saw the first allotment to the um, tribe of Judah. Um, and we learned that the boundaries that God draws are very different than the ones that we draw. And we usually try to kind of erase and redraw and erase and redraw, gather a little bit more up for ourselves. But instead, we need to be settled on where God draws the boundaries. Now, today, we're going to continue all these themes. For When we're going through the allotments, all of these themes continue through. We're going to add one more. And we're going to see a focus on the promises of God. We see God continuing to bless his people in ways that they don't deserve, and we see how they react to the blessings that he gives them. So have your Bibles ready, because we're going to be flipping around a little bit to see how this is actually the fulfillment of promises. Now, to clarify, and if you could put the map up, this is the breakdown to the 12 tribes. Now, if you don't know where the 12 tribes come from, you have to go back to Jacob, and they come from the 12 sons of Jacob. But if you compare the list of the 12 sons of Jacob to the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll see that they don't exactly match up. There's a couple of differences. Um, One, Levi, the son of Jacob, um, his people are the Levites, and they were specifically called out by God to be his people to do his work to be the priests. And so rather than getting a chunk of land, um, they got cities in all the different tribes. Um, And so we're going to be talking about that in a couple weeks. Uh, We also see no tribe of Joseph, which seems kind of odd if you consider that um, much of the second half of Genesis is devoted to his story. Uh, And the reason is, is Joseph's inheritance came through his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so that's who we're talking about today. Those are the people who are receiving the allotment that we're talking about. And they were added to the inheritance in Genesis 48. They were blessed by Jacob in the land of Egypt. So if we flip back there, verse 5, this is Jacob speaking. It says, And now your two sons who were born to you, Joseph, in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So here, Joseph ado- or Jacob adopts the two sons of Joseph to receive a portion along with the rest of his sons. Now, Joseph brings his sons forward to receive that blessing. Uh, Manasseh being the older, Ephraim being the younger. So he brings them forward with Manasseh on the right hand, which is the sign of greater blessing, Ephraim on the other. And as, as Joseph brings them forward to be blessed by his father, Jacob does kind of a funny thing, and he reaches out, to Manasseh, and then he reaches out to Ephraim. And so he crosses his arms 
um, to give the greater blessing to the younger. Uh, Joseph is kind of standing there and sees this happening, decides to step in and fix what uh, he thinks is a mistake of his father's. And Jacob instead says, I know my son, I know he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So, Ephraim gets the greater blessing, and we see that fulfilled here in Joshua 16 when Ephraim receives the first allotment, right? Ephraim's name is mentioned, and his allotment is given before Manasseh's. In the same way that Judah's was given first among all the tribes that we saw last week. Now, this shouldn't come to a huge surprise to us that the oldest doesn't get the full blessing, because if you look back through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you realize that the firstborn never gets the full blessing. So there's got to be a reason why God continues this pattern and is so obvious with it. Just again, a reminder, Abraham, his firstborn son was Ishmael, not Isaac, as we usually think. And what happened was God came to to Abraham and said, I promise that you and Sarah will have a child. They waited for a couple years and said, this ain't happening. Um, And they decided to take it into their own hands. And... um, and continue his line through his servant Hagar. And they had a son, Ishmael. But God had a different plan. That's why he gave them the plan in the first place, right? It would be, the greater blessing would be to Isaac. Now, Isaac had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau, being the oldest, had the right of birth, which he sold for a cup of soup. Not really one of his smarter moments. And as we see, he has a lot of foolish moments in his life. Um, but he still had the blessing, and that's kind of what he was banking on. I still get the blessing. And yet, when it gets to time for him to get his blessing, um, Jacob steals it from him in a little bit of deceit. You can read that story in Genesis 27. It's a good read. We're not going to go into it today. But again, we see the same pattern that the younger is blessed and given a greater blessing than the older. Jacob grows up to have 12 sons. His oldest son is Reuben. But as we saw last week, Reuben isn't the one who receives the greatest blessing. It's Judah, who's actually the fourth born. Now, the blessing doesn't go because of anything that these guys have done. It goes simply because that's who God is choosing to use um, to bless the whole world. Genesis 49.8 says, this is Jacob blessing Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So as we get to um, Ephraim and Manasseh, it's just one more echo of that same pattern. And why would God do that? Well, God is reminding us that he is different than us. He works by different systems. He is not held to some earthly system of blessing. He is not bound by human convention. He is not fair in the way that we see fairness. Now, that's not to say that he's unfair, but God is just. And it's this just and this otherness that kind of we get very uncomfortable with, right? Because it's that otherness of God that makes him so hard to pin down, that makes it so hard for us to kind of organize a system that makes sense where we can actually kind of control God. But God's ways are not only other. We have to remember that God's ways are also better. Isaiah 55 says, 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God says right here, my ways are better. Shouldn't be a surprise again. The God who created everything, his thoughts and his ways are better than ours, a finite being. Now, we don't like this. I don't like this. We prefer a God who works by our standards. But God continually reminds us that he's not going to do that. And this is true in the way that he blesses, as we've seen, which is outside of the realm of um, the, the status quo, but also in what he blesses with. It's easy to see how his ways are different, but also if we look at Isaac, Jacob, Judah, they weren't necessarily given more earthly possessions than their other brothers. So what is the blessing that God's giving them? The blessing that God is giving them is that they would have a greater role in God's bigger plan. Their blessing is that it would be through their family line that would eventually lead to Jesus, right? Who would then bless the entire world. Now this is important to remember because there's a lot of verses where God promises blessings, okay? And we can read our own idea of blessings into that. And this happens all the time, where every single verse that says blessing, you're going, bling, right? You're going, that's where God is promising me that all I have to do is pray more, and I'll have a better car, a better house, a better job. And then you start judging other people's faith by what they have. Ooh, his faith life, not quite as good as it could be because he's in a beater. (laughs) But God's ways, God's blessings are not always seen by us. If you put the map back up, Ephraim's lot is not all that impressive. I mean, look at Manasseh, right? Look at Judah. They're not a whole lot about to brag or to brag about right there. But Ephraim's part is that they'll play a greater role in Israel's future. They will be the main clan or tribe of the northern kingdom later on, which isn't tomorrow, right? Which isn't next week, which isn't in a couple of years. It's generations and generations and generations later. It will take some time for their greater role to show itself. And so they have to trust the promise, and more importantly, trust the promiser, than trust what they're seeing and what what they're seeing is telling them. Now, we struggle with this, don't we? I mean, how many times have, have you read something and you've been like, oh, oh, pray for healing. Well, okay, so you pray and then you're not healed and you go, okay, well, the promise must not work, right? Or work towards sanctification, work towards knowing God more. And you read your Bible for four days and you're like, I don't, this is supposed to get easier. It hasn't gotten easier in four whole days. God's faithfulness doesn't necessarily happen on our time. And so we have to be faithful knowing who he is and what he has promised, not necessarily just by what we can measure. Now this leads us to a point And there's a lot of guys now who are saying, okay, so we can't know anything about God, right? We can't know anything. We can just close our eyes and and hope he's doing good things behind the scenes. That's not our God either. Our God has chosen to pull back the curtains and to give us a glimpse of how he works through his promises. And he gives us that in his word. And just like a friend gives us his word as a promise, God's word contains promises, And we see the promises, we see the fulfillment of promises, and we see how sometimes 
It takes very difficult situations and circumstances to get to the promise, and sometimes it takes generations and generations and generations and generations before the promise is fulfilled. So as we read the breakdown of the promised land into the 12 tribes, we are reminded of the promises that God made long ago. We are reminded of the original promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, which says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's what's coming true. They are now getting the benefit of that promise. God is faithful. We remember the promise to Isaac. Genesis 26. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. This is coming true, right? That's exactly what's happening here as they're inhabiting the land. We remember the promise to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. This is coming true. All right? God is faithful. And he's showing his faithfulness by giving us a record of the promises and the fulfillments. So what we can easily dismiss here in Joshua 16 and 17 as simply border drawing land surveys is actually God proclaiming the fulfillment of his promise. And buried in this specific land survey here, we get another example of God's promised blessing. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 17, we read this quick interlude. Nezalophahad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, the son of Macher, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of these daughters. Malah, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Okay, sounds good, right? God promised, he did it. Um, when you read sections of scripture like this, it's easy to just kind of skim over it and go, oh, okay, they seem to see a promise and it's happening. But what this is, is pointing back in the Bible to when the promise was actually made. If we go back to Numbers 27, we find the story of the five daughters of Zelophehad. And in Numbers, when they're still in the desert trying to find their way, they approach the Moses in the tent of meeting, and they make a request. They say, our father has been promised an inheritance in the land when we get there. He is supposed to have a piece of this, and yet he had no sons. And so his line would basically die off right there. And so their appeal is, we should inherit the land that would go to his sons, due to the fact that he doesn't have sons, so that God's promised inheritance will still take place. 
Moses takes their request before God, and God says, this is right, and so they get a piece of the inheritance. So these sisters are concerned not just with getting theirs on the other end, they're concerned with the fulfillment of God's promise. They're concerned with their father's line getting what they're supposed to have. Now, that whole story happens before they ever get to the land of Canaan. And so these sisters are sure that they're going to get there, right? They, they know the promises, and they trust in the promises well enough to know. They say, when we get there, we'd like our allotment. When God is faithful to what he has promised, we want our piece of the, the pie. They're not asking for that which is outside the promise of God. As a matter of fact, they're showing their faith in the promises of God with their request. Now, we hear about these sisters again in the last chapter of Numbers. And in the last chapter of Numbers... Um, the story is actually more about the purity of the inheritance. And so the other uh, clans and tribes, uh, especially the clans in Joseph, are kind of looking at these sisters and thinking, okay, so if these sisters marry guys outside their clan, then they'll get a half portion and they'll get more of a portion than they're supposed And so there's kind of a what's going to happen here. So they approach Moses and they say, Moses, I'm not sure this is going to work. It seems like it's going to kind of mess up the purity of the inheritance and where it's supposed to go. Moses takes it to God. And God, through Moses, says that they need to marry within their clan to keep purity within the inheritance. Now, the daughters of Zelophehad had, at that point, have some right to be a little bit frustrated to an extent. I mean, their potential suitor pool just got reduced down to those guys over there, right? They no longer can just marry whoever they want. And yet, there's no objection. It simply says the daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. So, here in Joshua 17, it shouldn't be a big surprise to us that they are the ones who step up and remind Joshua, just like Caleb did a couple of weeks ago, remind Joshua of the promise that God had made. They know the promise. They trust in the promiser, and they're willing to act, to step up and be bold, to see the fulfillment of the promise. Now, in chapter 17, we see another story happening. This one, not quite as faithful. It's actually a contrast. And we'll pick up that narrative in verse 14, Joshua 17. It says, Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. So the people of Joseph, here combined, the two, the two uh, tribes, come forward and say, this isn't enough for us. They're not happy with their allotment. They come forward and they lay their discontentment in front of Joshua. Before we look at how Joshua answers them, let's look at the nature of their complaint. Their complaint is that they've been given just one lot. And though they are numerous, and they are in God's good graces, they're only getting this much, right? Or to say it a different way, God has blessed us mightily and made us great in number. He has continually blessed us. And because of his numerous blessings, we feel that we are entitled to more and more blessings in the future. That's basically what they're saying. What they're saying is, God's always been on our team, Right? not realizing that they should be on God's team. And we, as we've seen over and over again, God doesn't give out of obligation or democracy. God gives out of his own grace as he sees fit. 
And Joshua knows this. Joshua doesn't really take their complaint all that seriously. He knows what they're taking for granted, and he answers them in verse 15 and says, If you are a numerous people, then go up by yourselves to the forest where there is clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. So in his reply, he tells them, Yes, you are a great number. And that great number should allow you to clear the land a lot quicker. Right? Because basically they, have, they can't live in their entire allotment because a large portion of it is covered in forest and then another portion of it is covered in Canaanites. And so basically he says, well, with the number of people that you have, it should be pretty easy to clear out the Canaanites and clear out the wooded lot. God has given them great numbers so that they can use them to accomplish what he has commanded, not for them to use as some sort of bargaining chip or excuse to not work. Or, as we often do, using the blessings of God as an excuse to not be on God's mission. And I wonder, how often are the complaints that we come forward with as to why we can't act actually bringing God's blessings before him and using them as excuses? I'll give you an example. For years, I didn't take part in the church because it was full of hypocrites, and I could see that very clearly, and because it seemed very ineffective. And so I would sit back, and I would point out the ineffectiveness, point out the hypocrisy, and wait for it to be fixed, thinking, well, it's not worth it for me to get invest invested here in a place that really doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It never dawned on me that God might have given me the gift of discernment to actually see something and act on it, right? But maybe the fact that I was seeing all these things was because I was the one who was supposed to step up and do something. So think about it for a second. What is stopping you from employing what God has given you for his glory rather than your own? Is it the blessings itself? Do you say... God, you've given me so much money, but I have to spend it on upkeep on the boat, the mortgage, the car payment. God has given you so that you steward, not so that you use your gifts as an excuse not to do anything. Now, people of Joseph aren't done yet. They've got more excuses. And they say in verse 16, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plains have chariots of iron, but those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. So, not only is the gift not enough, but they refuse to do the work to extend their possession. Joshua tells them to clear the wooded land and to clear the Canaanites. Right? Pretty simple. Just go do it. But it's here that they show that not only do they not appreciate the gift that God has given, they don't actually trust the promises that God has given up to this point. When they were still in the desert wandering, before they ever got to the land of Canaan, God promised them that they would defeat all the armies of the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 7, verses 17 through 21, he makes it clear that he will be there to defeat their enemies. He says, If you say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. 
but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. So God has told them, I'll take care of it, right? Step forward in battle and I will be with you. And this wouldn't be the first battle that they've fought. I mean, they've been fighting all the way across Canaan, and they have seen God show up. And they've seen what happened when God doesn't show up, if you remember their one defeat at Ai. And Joseph knows this as well. And, sorry, Joshua knows this as well. And Joshua has been there. He's seen all the same things they have, but he has a different reaction to it. Their eyes are focused on the chariots of iron, but those chariots of iron are no greater than the walls of Jericho. They're no greater than the armies they've already defeated. And so Joshua makes a clear statement showing where he stands. And he tells his people what they should do. And I say his people because Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. So these are his people. He says, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So Joshua's answer is basically repeating what he said before, not really swayed by their second argument. And he tells them they will do exactly what God has told them to do, which is, here is your lot, work to make it, work to cleanse it and work to make it um, as great as you can. They will drive out the Canaanites, and they will clear the forest. And that's how chapter 17 ends. Which leaves us to the question, did they do it? And the answer is actually in there too. So, In chapters 16 and 17, we actually get an answer to that question. And so when you're reading narratives in the Bible, always remember they were written years later. And so they're not always written in chronological order. So sometimes details that are within what is read actually show what has happened in the future. So in chapter 16 and verse 10, we read that the Ephraimites did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And likewise, the people of Manasseh, in verse 13 of chapter 17, now when the people of Israel grew strong, showing that it was years later that they grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. So here's what's been bugging me. We learned about the five sisters, the five daughters of Zelophehad, and we saw their faithfulness. We saw how they rested on the promises of God, how they acted to see that those promises were fulfilled. And then we saw the unfaithfulness of the tribe of Joseph, or the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so it's easy to kind of go, okay, so we have two examples here, one example of great faith, one example of faithlessness. The problem is, 
they're not only contrasts of each other, but the sisters, of, the, sisters the daughters of Zelophehad, actually are within the people who are making this complaint. So at one time they were faithful, and now they're not. Likewise, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh have been fighting. They have been following through on their part to conquer the land. And these people are not wimps. When we look at the map on the east side of the or on the west side of the Jordan, Manasseh has a huge chunk over there. That was given specifically for their prowess in battle. These are men of war. And yet, now all of a sudden the chariots of iron iron seem too much. Now all of a sudden, these people who knew God's promises well enough to quote them back to him, to remind him of what he had said, are all of a sudden doing or not doing exactly what he told them to do. So why the change? And I think the problem is actually the blessing. Before, when they had been faithful, the promise was still to come, right? They were marching across with this promise out there that eventually they would get the land. Now, all of a sudden, they have the land, and they've gotten comfortable. They're sitting on their inheritance, and they're letting their inheritance be their satisfaction. They have forgotten that all the promises, the fulfillment, the faithfulness, All of these things are not given just so that you get what's yours in the end, right? They're not just so that they can have their inheritance. It's so that they strengthen their love and reliance on the one who gives the inheritance. Trust in God, not trust in things, right? And we're the same. Again, we often focus on the things that God has given us, and we're thankful for the things that he has given us, And yet, we start to put the value in the things rather than the God who gave the things. We start to find joy in our things rather than in the God who gave us those things. And it's not just physical possessions, because that's, I think, automatically where our minds go. It's also health, right? God has given us health, and so we can certainly be thankful for health. At the same time, when we are sick it's actually sometimes drives us to more trust and reliance on God. And what we don't realize when we're asking for all these things, when we're constantly going back to God and asking him for things, we're forgetting that he has given the one thing that we really need. He has given us himself. And he, realizing that we were steeped in sin and helpless to ever find our way back to him, sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of all of these promises, right? When we read in Jacob the promise that through Jacob, God will bless the whole world, that promise is Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? As God, he came down to earth as a man. He lived a perfect life that we could never live. He died on the cross by our hands, by the hands of sinful men, raised from the dead, and then allows us to gain the inheritance that he earned. Allow us to identify with him. And so, it is through God's ultimate inheritance that we receive eternal life with him. And through Jesus, we receive the promise of a new life. But the expectation is, with this new life that we live, we don't just sit in the new life and 
you know, reflect on how wonderful it is to have it. And in Acts 2, God sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts to give us the power to continue his mission forward. Not just so that we walk around with the Holy Spirit inside of us like a little ride, like he needs us to get from place to place. Right? He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we continue to act. And I think we, and I know I, spend far too much time sitting on our inheritance, looking at the things that God has blessed us with. Thanking God for his blessings, but in a certain way, thanking God for his blessings so that we don't have to live without them. We rest a little bit too much on our justification and forget about sanctification. And what I mean is, we spend a lot of time looking back to that one time, you know, 20 years ago at camp when we raised our hand, and how awesome that moment was. And I'm not trying to take away from the greatness of that moment, but what have you done since then, right? It should be a continual life of moving towards God, a continual life of clearing the land, and much like the call for people of Joseph to clear the land, we are called on a mission that should never be done. We should never get comfortable and think, okay, now I've arrived. Now I've gotten to a place where I can kind of just sit and rest for a while. God has called us to never be done working on the health of our marriages. It might be great today, but if you're not working on it, you know what? It'll catch up. To never be done teaching our children about who God is. We don't rely on the church to teach our children. We teach our children. And don't just assume because you told them once, you know, when they were three and you got them to say a prayer where they were repeating you so that they could make you proud that you've done your part to teach your children. Never stop talking about the inheritance that we have been given. Some of us are so afraid to talk about Jesus. We're so afraid of the consequences. What might happen if someone finds out that we're a Jesus freak? We're called to never stop planting churches. Little plug. All right, we're planting a church out of here. All right, it would be easy for us to go, man, well, this one's going pretty good. Why would we potentially damage this one by planting another one? Because we can't get comfortable. We must never stop. But remember that we're working out of our inheritance, not for it. When Jesus saves us, we are not just saved from the depths of hell. We're not just given eternal life, but we're also given a new purpose. The new purpose in, in Jesus is a life of continuous worship of him. And 1 Thessalonians 4 puts it like this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So to rest on the promises of God, we must first believe that his ways are better. They are other, and we might not see with our own minds how this is going to equal what God promised, but we must follow what he said. We display the trust in God's promises by actually choosing his ways over ours, by actually choosing to live for him rather than to live for ourselves, to find glory and to fight for his glory, not just our own. By seeking his kingdom, by relying on his wisdom, by knowing the promise, by trusting the promiser, 
and by continually acting toward the fulfillment of the promise. And the acting out of this faith in his promises is both a, both a walking towards God and a continual action in that direction and also a continual fight against our own sinful flesh. Because the people of Joseph were called to do two things. They were called to clear the wooded land to make that place a better place for them, but they were also called to kill all the Canaanites, to purify the land. And when we hear that, it, yeah, right? It kind of doesn't feel right. But if we actually believe that God knows what's best and God commanded it, then we do it. We don't trust our own judgment on the situation if God has called us to do something otherwise. The people of Joseph knew what God's word said, but killing just seemed extreme. It just seemed like too much. They decided, great idea, we'll just make them slaves. Right? That'll be enough. We're not doing really what God said, but if they're slaves, it won't really ever affect us in the future. Right? They'll be kind of pushed down. Seem too harsh. And we make the same justifications for sin in our life. You ever said any of these? It's not that bad. It's not hurting anyone else. I'm a lot better than I used to be. It doesn't really affect me. I could quit at any time. Or I don't struggle with that anymore. These are all lies that cause us to get comfortable in our inheritance. So comfortable that we stop believing in God's promises and in God's warnings. Because God has warned us what sin will do in our life. Just as he warned them what leaving Canaanites around would eventually do to them. He tells us that the lure of sin is sweet. That Satan is prowling and ready to attack. That sin is always ready to enslave you. And so if you are not constantly working towards the eradication of sin in your life, it means that sin is fighting to get in. And don't think for a second that ignoring the problem or making it a slave is eventually going to make it go away. But take the words of Joshua to heart. Joshua tells the people and reminds them constantly of God's promises and that they will defeat their enemies. God has promised the Israelites that they will succeed as long as they keep working, as long as they keep moving forward, as long as they step up to the fight. God has given us all manner of power and promise, but we must continue to do our part and not get comfortable that because we go to church, that because we are better than we used to be, that because there's other people that are worse than we are, that somehow it's okay and we can kind of sit back and get fat and lazy. So as we close here today, I have a couple of questions, and I, I want you to sit on these, take stock of your life a little bit throughout this week. First question, what are my excuses for avoiding God's call? And it could be anything. It could be good things. Maybe it's an unwillingness to make the sacrifice that you know it's going to take to do what God is calling you to. Because sometimes, you know what? God calls you to things that aren't easy. Calling the people of Joseph to fight means that some of them are going to die. They need to put some things on the line in order to get out there and fulfill God's commands. Number two, am I using God's blessing as an excuse rather than as an asset? God has given us a lot. In 
21st century America, we have, in terms of resources, you know, money, things, time, we have more than basically any people group ever has. And yet we still fall back on, I don't have the time to do that. At some point you have to ask yourself, what are you doing in that time that makes it unable for you to do God's work? And are you actually working within the blessings that he gave you and using that as an excuse not to get on mission? Third, where have I simply avoided God's commands because I don't think I need them? Or I don't think they're right? Or they don't really make sense to me? Or I tried them for five minutes and they didn't really work very well then and so I've given up ever trying them again in my entire life. Or I just don't see how that would work. We avoid God's commands for all sorts of reasons, but usually what it comes down to is we've convinced ourselves that we're smarter than God, that we can see it better than he can. But if we actually believe that he is other and he is better, we're talking about the God who created the entire world. Let's believe that he might know how it works. Finally, after answering all those questions and having a depressing list, what do you need to do to get yourself up off the couch and into the fight? You've identified the problem. Now what are you going to do to put it into action? And the fight is hard. And it's why we come here every week and gather together. This isn't just a club. And if it were, this would not be the best club in the world, sorry. And it's not just a hobby, because if it is, it's a crappy hobby. We are the people of God. And we come together to remember the promises of God. Sitting in this room all around you are God's people, the recipients of the inheritance, the people on mission. And it's their job to help remind you to fight. And it's your job to continue, continually encourage, support, and fight with them. We come together every week. We hear the promises of God. We see the fulfillment and we focus specifically on what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to earn for us the inheritance that we then can work out of. So as we come forward to take communion, we are identifying ourselves with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, recognizing that his work is the only reason that we can even begin to fight. His work is the only reason we have anything at all. But it's in identifying ourselves with him we're given the power and privilege to work, but also the responsibility to continually act until we're dead. Keep fighting.